0: Oh, and ladies and gentlemen, it is Friday night, it's half past seven. Welcome to episode 68 of A. Thompson and Other Disappointments. Um, thanks very much for everyone that's been uh, that's been tuning into the, uh, the live streams the last few weeks. Um, and the uh, solo episodes that I've been doing seem to be gaining quite a lot of traction. So I just want to give a quick shout out to everyone that's, uh, that's tuning into those and, and commenting on them. Um, feeling the love, to be honest, feeling it um joining me tonight i've got uh, i've got a guest if, if you're new to the podcast uh, i do a sort of solo thing on uh, wednesday usually uh, and then on a, a friday night i'm joined by a guest and i talk to them about their uh, particular area of expertise uh, it's usually an area of interest for me um or we i don't know i get a couple of friends on and we talk shit about politics or whatever um this week i'm super psyched uh, about my guest um an area i i suppose that i've not explored to date on this podcast, um, has been sort of, uh, the, like the, the sensibility of the sort of like the enterprising individual, like right? to, to be something of an entrepreneur. Now I would never classify myself as, as an entrepreneur. Cause I just, <laughs> in my mind, when I say that word, I get sort of connotations of, of success and, you know, having a separate account for investment money and, um, uh, chairing meetings with various investors and lenders and, and all that stuff. I'm definitely nowhere near that but um but I I respect it hugely um I suppose my girlfriend is in more that sort of arena um with regards to to investors and meeting lenders and stuff um but it's yeah I find it all very fascinating and I suppose I like a lot of people have had various ideas in the past where I thought that would make a good business or somebody should create a startup for that or um so super psyched tonight to get a startup strategist on to uh to discuss this with me her profession some of the challenges that she's been up against um please welcome to the show my guest this week lee lamb <laughs> hi
1: everyone hi, hi. How are you doing?
0: hey i'm good thanks how are you how's your week been good,
1: good. busy busy been doing lots and lots of talking so look forward to yet another lot of talking.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to not give you a break from that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose a good place to start, uh, as ever, uh, with with, with any of my guests, is really to sort of get an understanding of, of how you came to do what you do, because Startup Strategist is not a job title that's sort of banded about too often, I wouldn't have thought, and it's not something I remember coming up in, like careers advice, counselling, that sort of stuff. So how did you come to do this?
1: Uh, well, without giving too much of a life story, um, I started in corporates. So I was in financial services, technology roles, um, started doing more sort of COO, chief of staff type roles, which is mm. basically the the running of the department or the running of the company. And um, eventually got tired of the corporate life, as I think 90% of the people do. So wanted to start out on my own. And actually just went to startup events thinking oh i'm just going to be a very generic business consultant and probably go for bigger companies but just get kept, kept kept getting pinged to the wall by startups asking what they thought were silly questions like they didn't want to sound dumb in front of anyone else so they were asking what they thought of silly questions i knew the answer and i thought well hold on a second there's a gap here Of people who it's not that they haven't got the business idea it's that they haven't got the confidence to go forwards. they don't know if they present as a business owner as much as they like so I ended up starting your startup partner which that's that's what I do I just help them strategize so wherever they're entering the market and whichever market they're going into they've got a plan that they feel is like manageable
0: Okay, so your job, I suppose, your profession uh, is is sort of taking people like almost like hand holding through that first step of like, I've got an idea. I, I think it could be something, but I'm not sure how to take the first sort of baby steps in in terms of like realising it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Because there's always people thinking, well, if it was that good an idea, it'd already be there. Right. And so they they put all sorts of blocks in their way. And half the time, the idea hasn't gone anywhere because the right person hasn't come up with the right idea. So I try to just encourage them to give it a go. And because of my background, I think automatically about risk and making sure that the risk that you take isn't too big for who you are. So, you know, I'm not a fan of this, you got to go all in, sell up and use everything to um, go into business because you don't have to. So I just help people get more realistic versions that they feel comfortable with that then makes them think, yeah, I can do this.
0: So then how does that, right, so let's say, cause this, this is, I've, I've been itching to ask people this sort of question for ages. So let's say I'm, I'm just sort of Joe blogs down the street. I've got a wicked idea for a new web app or mobile app or like shop or, or whatever. Um, I don't know how to get it off the ground, and I am nervy about uh, having to sell my flat to release capital to to fund it instead of what I like. What, what even are my options to be able to start a business?
1: Well, there's quite a few. I mean, there's a lot of open source, source things out there now. So, things that can help you build an app or build the technology yourself, give you a platform. Um, But in a lot of cases, there's local authorities that will give you training and guidance and funding grants to help you get your idea off the ground, uh, particularly if it would uh, maybe mean that you hire people in the local economy. They're always quite up for that. Uh, But really, it's about starting to have the conversation with people and going into meetings and events where other people with other ideas come along. And you may not know the right people right now, but they do. And so it's mm. usually about the confidence to just go out there and say, I've got this idea who out there can, can help me. And, and you usually find someone.
0: Have you, like, because you, you come across quite sort of like self-assured and, and confident. And obviously, like I guess what you're tapping into there is like, sometimes people don't necessarily have the confidence to go, you know, straightforward for it have you always been confident and self-assured or is it something that you've had to kind of pick up along the way or somebody's had to kind of handhold you or
1: (laughs) not at all not at all i think when i was younger i was really underconfident and um kind of hid in academia quite a lot i did like a law degree and i just thought i just want to keep studying um but then because the first job i got was in a bank um they are quite alpha places right you you can't be a wallflower and try to progress in the companies it's just the vibe that they have so I sort of developed this ability to go if I know what I'm talking about then I'm going to be confident in it if I don't know what I'm talking about I'll be confident in saying I don't know what I'm talking about Um, but that has helped me just get to the point where I'm just more comfortable to say, yeah, I can help in these ways, I can't help in these ways. And actually, I find that helps the people that I work with because it's not about knowing all the answers. It's about going, I know that bit, don't know that bit, I need help here. And and then they see, oh, actually, I don't have to be this really overconfident, extroverted person to go and and start my own business.
0: Yeah, and that's it's quite a a giant skill set to adopt, I think. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking mostly from personal experience here and, and f- fueled by conversations that I've had with my girlfriend, but we sort of agreed that this is a thing that people usually only uh, hone like in their 30s is the uh, the confidence to be able to say, I don't know the answer to that. Or like, I I don't think I can help you with that. Like when you're in your 20s, when you're a graduate or you're in your first couple of jobs, there's mm. I feel like there's a definite sort of pressure there that, that you have to like pretend almost that you do know the answers to everything or well, you do have to say yes to everything and then you go away and figure out how you're actually going to do the thing that you just said yes to you know
1: yeah but then I think that is primarily in the work environment not in entrepreneurship because I like my youngest client is 19 years old he started his business when he was 16 Right, and actually what I'm seeing more is younger and younger people thinking that I look at the job markets and it's either jobs I don't want jobs I can't do or there's just no job there for me you know um it's ridiculous how many jobs say you need five years experience in a starter role it's just it's crazy so if you don't have any choice you can't go into that world You've got nothing to lose by trying to start up a business because you go, well, if I'm going to mess up, at least this is on my terms. And so that confidence of experience is kind of replaced with, I might as well give it a go. Um, yes, when you get to your 30s, actually, you start having bills to pay and mouths to feed and all that. And, and then you go through that confidence development cycle. But when they're younger, they're just like, yeah, might as well give it a go.
0: Yeah, yeah. Have you, did you see that? Um, there was a viral clip of Jim Carrey that went around, must have been three or four years ago, and he was talking about a conversation that he'd had with his late father, uh, who had worked his entire life as an accountant on the basis that it was a safe job, mm. uh, and only to be made redundant and lose everything. Um, and I think Jim Carrey said, like, you know, my dad was like a funny guy, like he could have been a comedian, like a great comedian, but he didn't do he didn't pursue what he loved because he felt like this was the safe option this was the responsible option and it turned out that it you know it kicked him in the ass and left him with nothing yeah um and there's a sort of i mean it's not exactly the same right but it's there's a there's a sort of parallel there in the sense that you may as well pursue what you actually are enthusiastic about because if you don't like if you pursue the boring safe option there's no fucking guarantee that it's going to turn out well well for you either no. you know
1: no not at all and i think we we're, we're seeing that generationally you know that the generations that are currently in all the boardrooms of the the bigger companies just don't understand the younger generations and there's no whereas we we were in a, a kind of legacy environment where it was all about how it was done before that's not feasible now. The world has changed drastically even before COVID. And so the generations now are looking at that and buckling and saying, I, I don't want to do that. You know, I, I don't want to be exactly a carbon copy of everything else. And they're also being drip, drip fed, you know, AI is taking all the jobs, everything's being automated, you know, and so what are they supposed to do? And and I think we're seeing more of the younger generation like Gen X, Uh, Gen X, I'm Gen X, Gen (laughs) Z coming through and saying, well, let's get let's give it a go and not do things the way that they've been done before. And and that's why I think sometimes the bigger companies are missing out on that talent that could keep them going for a little bit longer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's also there's an element of like with all the job insecurity that they face in their generation it almost in- encourages, I suppose, entrepreneurialism mm. in the sense that they're like, well, A, no job is guaranteed. We know that. Like there's the, the days of sort of, you know, working in one factory for like 37 yep. years or something, That's that's gone. People don't yep. look at sort of, uh, what's it, um, like loyalty to their employer in the same way that their dad or grandfather did. Mm. Um, so there's that. And then there's the just the, the, the actual job market as it is right now. And so... I have family members or extended family members who are younger than I am. Uh, they're in their sort of early 30s and late 20s, and they're struggling to find a place that will give them a full-time job. Like, like they're still being tasked to do, you know, a permies, uh, a permanent member of staff's mm. responsibilities, but it's like three days a week. So it's kind yeah. of part, part-time. Um, and so I think in that younger generation, Gen Z or, or Zoomers, I've heard them called. I, I sound oh, yeah. like such an old bastard these days. <laughs> <time. Like>, oh, <laughs> I've, I've I, I
1: heard the they're side. called
0: Zoomers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wonder, you know, if, if if what they're being offered is three days a week, well, that leaves them with two. And it might not be the ideal solution for them as they're trying to save up money for a flat deposit or something. But it does leave them with two days to focus on something else, you know, that they're interested in starting a business or building a youtube channel or something you know
1: yeah and i think that's the difference we you know the older generations are used to the idea of companies being big tower blocks with your name on the front and and that's the success but nowadays the businesses that are coming through are content creators they're influencers and you don't need anybody other than your audience to keep keep happy and so you can be more creative um you know for so many years we've belittled creative activity for science and maths and you know we're not all mathematicians and we're not all scientists um and there's a hell of a lot of fantastic creative people who now have an outlet not just to show how creative they are but make a lot of money from it so why you're if you're a young person and you're thinking i could set up on twitch in 10 minutes and give it a go or I could go through all of these grades and go through university, get a huge bloody debt at the end of it and still not be guaranteed any kind of job. I, I don't understand why people think that that's a bit of a strange situation to go in. It seems like an obvious choice when you're not get, being given any other choices.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's sort of um, it, like the, the days of creatives being exploited, by you know quote unquote like big business people like i suppose record companies are a good example like they'll take a sort of flowery creative in a cardigan with an acoustic guitar who writes beautiful arty songs and Mm. then sell it to the masses and make a fucking mint meanwhile like the singer songwriter who created uh the art is left Mm. to rot you know on sort of like spotify royalties and uh, and then sent out to tour for like three years like two yeah. two and a half years longer than maybe they would have done like uh mm-hmm. ten years ago or twenty years ago um so the like the days of exploiting artists and and creatives in that sense, I feel like that that period is is shortening and it's it's i don't know it's narrowing to an extent now where those creatives are now in a position where they can actually market their own yeah. Uh, art and milk it themselves they don't need the sort of middlemen in the same way that they did
1: yeah exactly I mean in in before if you wanted to release music or you wanted to write a book or you wanted to do any form of of tv work you had to go through the major studios the major companies Um, which meant that what we got was the art that they wanted us to create not the art that we wanted to create and you know certainly you'd have somebody start off with some fairly vanilla type pop stuff that they started with that got them seen and then they'd have this arc of this is the stuff that I really want to do and it's drastically different and they can only do that because they've now got the influence over the company to go hey you have got to let me do my own thing. Wing out a stage where, um so I don't know, do you know the singer Kate Nash? Yeah. Yeah, so she's got an album that she wants to release and no record company will take her on. So she's gone to TikTok and said, guys, I've got some music that I want to release. What do you think? And now she's got conversations with record companies because the TikTok fans have come out and gone, "Hmm, actually, why why are you not doing this? And so the tables have turned. The artists have a route to the fans that the companies can't control and that's you know it's this kind of democratization of capitalism it it just you can't have particular people in control anymore which i i think is much better
0: yeah i mean it's i've read a a few blogs and articles and stuff about how uh and sort of similar to what you were just touching on a minute ago how you don't actually get the product that the artist wanted to present to you what you get is the product that the artist created and then it goes through three or four different layers like it goes through I don't know legal who say yes this is okay you can say this in your in your gangster rap song and then it goes through marketing and they go actually probably not a great idea to have a a image of Jesus being set on fire on the you know (laughs) and then you know it's a lot of this stuff would be upsetting to people somewhere but if this is the artist's vision you have to kind of respect that right but famously or infamously uh once producers and legal and uh and the ceo or or whatever of these big companies get involved what you get is a sort of sanitized uh cellophane wrapped like pristine mass market version or interpretation of of what probably should have been i think the the best example i've heard of that actually is um sort of showing my age a little bit here but uh uh when in utero came out by nirvana Mm. uh, that was the first album of theirs that i i got and i ended up becoming a like a huge fan of theirs Mm. Uh, and it was only like 20 years later that i read a thing about how kurt cobain struggled and fought and argued to get the his original sort of mixes of in utero uh released as like the finished copy and eventually he just got tired of arguing with i think it was geffen records he was signed to very very similar situation as as what we're talking about here where producers and management and you know everyone wants to get the maximum amount of money for their investment in that product don't they
1: yeah
0: uh so so they're like well you know if you sing it like this then it might sell more in like china or
1: (laughs) yeah
0: "Uh, all right (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, exactly, and it's telling because we've got albums where they used to get launched with maybe 10 or 11 songs, and now that the artists can download straight to Spotify or, or Apple Music, there's 20, 30 songs on there, and the fans like the process. We live in a world now where the fans can see behind the curtain. They don't, they don't want a polished version that, they, that they're not sure they, they want to see the process because they want to support the whole thing. And I think when we're dealing with the bigger companies, they're designed to keep, keep the curtain up um, so that you can't see what they're doing in the background. But everyone can, so there's no point doing it. Um, they, they're taking their time. Meanwhile, artists are going on to things like Spotify and just going direct to their fan base. And then the, the companies mm-hmm. are running to catch them up. Which is laughable.
0: I, yeah, like I, 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 see sort of pros and cons to that, and I'll sort of I'll expand on that a little bit. So I love the fact that artists can get their music out directly to fans, and I really love the idea that it's sort of a bit more independent and a bit more gritty, and uh, that side, like whether we're talking about music or comedy or whatever, if it's gritty and a bit grungy and a bit like I'm all about it, uh, but I do sort of think with Record companies trying to sort of put up a curtain and keep their artists a little bit removed from the fans. I think I kind of like that because I think it elicits a feeling that the artist is a bit magical and a bit mysterious. You know, I don't think you should know everything about your favourite singer. I don't think there should be interviews of them on every in every magazine and they're constantly on TV. And, you know, I think it's good good to be a bit, have a bit of mystique.
1: Yeah, I suppose, yeah, there was definitely more fun when you had to kind of guess what someone thought rather than see it initially. And and also we have the issue now where trolling exists. So we've got a lot more artists having to deal with some uh, PR that they've not had to deal with before because the company were there to help them out. So um, yeah you know it goes both both ways it is better because they can put out something that feels more pure but it's not great because with that comes all of the trolls and all of the people who see them and and expect skill that that shined exterior uh, not that grittiness they, they're kind of like we won't see everything but everything has yeah. to be perfect if you're all right. <laughs>
0: <clears throat> yeah, like like we're used to a certain standard, aren't we, of sort of you know three million dollar music video promo clips and <laughs> yeah. uh, you know a Dr Dre beat or a Timberland beat on every album and um, yeah yeah. Here's here's a wild thought. It's very little to do with uh, uh, entrepreneurs or or startup strategy, That's but funny. how close do you think we are business wise to because like let let me preface this question right by saying. Back in the day, the reason that record labels became record labels was because they owned like sort of pressing plants or they had certain deals with regards to logistics and uh, and they had studios of their own. So they would sign an artist and press it and then, you know, send them out on the road and so on. Mm. So that was a record company. And then over the years, uh, it changed from records to CDs, but kind of the same process, still mm. pressing and marketing and. Uh, And now we're in an era where people don't actually buy a physical product. They just stream it. Like, they don't even buy the fucking album anymore, like on iTunes or or whatever. It's literally just streamed. Um, So there's no real reason why an artist should or would sign with a quote-unquote record company like Sony or BMG or Time Warner. So Mm. here's my question. How close do you think we are to someone like Netflix or like I'm trying to think of another big media company like MTV I guess maybe like somebody just going yeah well like we're signing rihanna and we put a music on spotify just like you could or i could yeah. and then they just you know they've got marketing budget like cuz that's effectively what it is now isn't it it's like you're not a record company you're a marketing company
1: yeah do you think we'll yeah. we'll start seeing that oh definitely but i think it is cyclical i think we Simplify everything, and then when it gets simple, we start complicating it again with with bits that we maybe don't want to do ourselves. So you know, a, a music a music company might also look after the PR, for example. So the the artist thinks, well, yeah, I want the direct connection, but I want you to deal with PR, and then it becomes easier for them to also organise the concerts and organise the merchandise, and then we're backing what looks like a record company um, apart from the decision-making process of what goes out and what doesn't so I think they'll become more like a a service company servicing the artists rather than the other way around I I can definitely see that happening
0: yeah yeah that would be and you could sort of you could pair maybe like their film contracts and shit because a lot of a lot of musicians end up going into film even if it's just like a little bit part here and there don't they so you yeah can see if if one of them was signed to like i don't know like sony you have a, a cinema thing don't they cinema uh function yeah, yeah so you could see that like if they're servicing as you say like the artist mm. uh it would make sense for them to sort of like pair that i'm sure there's a word for that is it like ver- vertical Integration. Yeah,
1: get into different verticals. So the it's like with um with any content creator, whether it's artist or whatever, the the thing that they're known for is only a small proportion of the income generated, right? So if you look at um game streamers, for example, over on Twitch, yeah, yeah, they get some money from Twitch or they get money from YouTube, but the real money is in merchandising, it's in the other things around it and i think that's what uh the artists themselves are getting really good at at working through so yeah i release this music but through that i get the walk-on part on a film or i get a concert that i wouldn't have got by myself or you know it's a it's a visibility tool but they know that they're going to have to go into other areas to really generate the amount of revenue that is possible because if they don't do it, somebody else will just do it in their place.
0: Yeah, that's a big thing as well, isn't it? It's sort of, I mean, my like my own situation or my own example of that is is trying to build a YouTube channel. Mm. And uh, it topped out like over a, a thousand subscribers. Big, big moment. Yeah. Uh, that was a, a month or two ago. And uh, I mentioned to my girlfriend, I was like, yeah, I think, I think in about an hour or two, we're going to get over a thousand subscribers. And she was like, does that mean you can start like, Doing like the Google ad, like making money out of the YouTube ads. I was like, whoa, 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 slow like, it's, so <laughs> oh, <young. laughs> it's so like hilariously bad. I mean, no disrespect to YouTube. Thank you so much for building a platform that's uh, that's allowing me to have this lovely conversation with Lee tonight. Uh <laughs> but it is, I mean it in terms of YouTube's ad revenue structure, I think it's probably on a par with Spotify's like musician revenue. <laughs> streams like it's not you're not going to get rich out of doing it and this taps straight back into the point that you just made which is if you don't find a way to monetize your own shit then someone else is going to do it right so youtube will step in put adverts at the beginning of your content Mm. Uh, they're making money out of that because brands are paying youtube to push this advert in there well, you need to find a way to effectively create your own adverts, at like at the top and at the end. And you know, I can say quite, quite uh, certainly, we're we're way off attracting any sponsors yet. Uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it seems like that's that's I don't know my own sort of example of of what you were touching on. Yeah.
1: There. Um, I I will say um, they did some research on Instagram uh, influencers a little while ago. And they worked out that somebody with two and a half thousand followers, but Mm. engaged followers was more profitable to sponsor than someone with over a hundred thousand, because the more followers there are, the less, the the only reason they're there is because everyone else is there. They're not really engaging with the content. So it's never about the followers. It's always about the engagement, because if you can prove to a, a company, Hey, I've got 500 people watching me and they are all commenting and chatting and responding to it. If I say your product's really good, they're listening far more than if, you know, Kim Kardashian says something or one of the, the sort of Instagram influencers says something that everyone knows is not ad. They probably have never used the product. You know, there's all sorts of cynicism around it. So yeah. Have a yeah. look at the following
0: number. Always engagement. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's sort of, I suppose it's there should there probably is a term for it. I was about to say there should be a word for that, like sort of you know smart sponsorship. Like it's not about <laughs> just you know funneling out adverts and paying people to, yeah, like, witlessly promote it. It's about finding someone who actually could be attached to it in a sort of almost authentic way. Almost, <laughs> <You know>? almost. <laughs> um, one of the. The, the, the great thing is just to sort of use Spotify as the uh mm. uh the segue for this, right? So one of the great things about Spotify and before it sort of MySpace or YouTube is a good example also, uh, is that in this sort of era of opening up the floodgates, if you like, to to platforms where anyone can start a YouTube channel or anyone mm. can upload their music, uh it's great because literally like anyone has a shot at pushing something out there that could catch fire right yeah but the the con to that pro is that literally anyone (laughs) can do it it's it's so like infinitely harder to find like the needle in the haystack the actual gem out there and uh if like anyone that's listening will know this that when you go on Spotify now it's almost like we've lost something around sort of finding a gem, because what happens is you go through your discover weekly playlist and, you know, Spotify recommends and all this stuff, you hear a song that you like, but it's not like it would have been 20 years ago where you go wicked, I've got to get that. And maybe I'll buy the album. Now it's like, Oh, I love that song. Anyway, on to the next. you know, like you, you endlessly, endlessly go through this ocean of content. Yeah. And I wondered if in you sort of opening up the floodgates in a, perhaps a smaller scale, to people and taking their their startup ideas, their new, new business ideas, is there the same sort of pro and con to it where it's like that the pro is that you could help change people's lives and start up a business and they could be the, you know, lord or lady of their own destiny. That's amazing. But the con to that is that literally anyone can pitch you an idea and have you had to sit through some fucking terrible ideas. <laughs>
1: Well, I've I've been relatively lucky in that I haven't heard any truly, like, don't do that. That's a really, really bad idea. I've had a lot of people who have said, this is the next Spotify. This is the next Uber. And you're like, please don't say that because that straight away kills the idea. You know, you don't want to be a copy of anything. Um, But it's really bloody hard not to be a copy of something with so many ideas. I mean, the market will determining itself right if 10 ideas come out one of them is going to shoot off and the others are going to die and i think the the bigger risk is probably people seeing you know a a startup like airbnb for example and they think oh i can i can achieve that level of success and you can but they don't realize just how much luck is involved (laughs) in in the right place at the right time with the right people the right energy, you know, it's like that, um, the unicorn of going viral on social media. Startups are exactly the same. If you start with a a realistic view of, I'm just going to start now, and if I get one person, that will be one milestone. And then when I get 10, that will be another milestone. That's way better than doing some kind of manifesting chant to get, you know, your first 10 million, because it's just yes it can happen but so much of it is luck and so it's not so much bad business ideas it's bad thinking behind the business idea that you just go no you're not that's not a good idea <laughs> not for you in in your current sort of mind mind frame
0: yeah it's sort of it's i I tell you what it reminds me of hearing that is like when I've read books on parenting and blogs on parenting, and they say how important it is to instill the idea of like achievable goals to your kids. Yeah. Rather than, you know, because if they grow up and they, they're like, I'm going to be the next Justin Bieber. And you're just like, well, maybe, I mean, it's, it is possible, <laughs> but, you know, and then they set themselves up for, I don't know, a, at, at worst, a you know, a humiliating, crushing uh, feeling of failure. Um, hmm. and, and likelihood is that at best it's, you know, it's not going to work out well and they'll just be, you know, disappointed. So it's, it's sort of mm. more about sort of encouraging them to set these, these little milestone goals where it's like, okay, well, your first goal is, I don't know, maybe you want to do a demo tape or the second goal is you want to do your first gig and just yeah. like keep shooting for these slightly bigger targets um, mm. And then you still get the sort of kickback, like the dopamine and the the pride in having achieved something. But it's not yeah. it's not in the same sort of uh, risk of as uh, as I say, sort of that feeling of soul crushing failure.
1: Yeah, um, and I think I am quite optimistic. Like if somebody says to me, you know, I want to be the next Jeff Bezos, I'm like, cool. How's that going to happen, right? And and I do think you know there's that awful. Um, phrase like shoot for the moon and you'll end up in the stars it, it, yeah. this, this kind of idea that you can have the big dream but you've got to be realistic about how to get there and that it's those little successes along the way that make you think okay so i didn't quite get as as rich as jeff Bezos but within what i did achieve it was brilliant and i had fun while i was doing it um what's worse is actually if you start and you don't have any idea of where you want to go so you have no concept of whether you're succeeding or not because you you have got no idea what you're aiming for in the first place um and there that's usually when people seek me out and go I don't know what I'm doing (laughs) okay come and talk to me
0: (laughs) yeah it's I mean it must be nice to be in a position to to like it's quite a positive job that you have isn't it to know that uh that you could take somebody's idea and help them mold it and sculpt it and give it direction and Mm. like have you got sort of like case study stories where you're just like you know this girl or this guy was you know he was just working in a barber shop or he was doing you know x y and z and now i i helped him get on the way and look at his life now like is there stuff like that that you sort of look back on or
1: yeah i mean one that stands out is someone who um she runs like it, it it's a children's entertainment band. So they're a rock band. Um, but they do kids' concerts and they're they're brilliant. And I started working with them a little bit before the pandemic because we were just trying to maximize like what she was doing and where she was going with it. Um and then the pandemic hit and she was she was like, I do live concerts. I am so screwed.
0: Game over. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's like, what do I do? So throughout the pandemic, I was saying to people, just stay visible. Even if you can't actually work, just remind people you're there. So we we were like, right, go on your Facebook Live page and just talk to people or, or play songs or whatever. And she did like a request half an hour. So for half an hour, she went live and the kids could ask for a song and she would play it. She happens to be a keyboard player who can... Play by ear. So she hums the song and she's playing it. It's amazing. Um, but she did that, got the, got through the pandemic, she set up like a, a virtual tip jar, and you know, people would contribute because for half an hour of a day in lockdown, their two three-year-olds were, were entertained and they were very, very grateful. At the end of lockdown, it's like, okay, so now what do I do with this? Because I'm I'm suddenly more visible and she was getting much better offers. So she was, she got a, a phone call from a park and they said, oh, can you come and, uh, and sing for a, a play, perform for us in the summer? And she was like, yeah, sure. What date are you thinking? And they went, no, the summer.
0: <laughs> so oh, they, wicked, residency,
1: yeah. They went, yeah. yeah, they wanted the bang for like the whole summering. And she was like, oh my God, you know, just from coming from, I don't know how a live bang is supposed to work in lockdown to then is amazing. And she moved, she transitioned a little bit and moved over to TikTok and she does TikTok concerts now. So she goes live and, and performs. But I saw TikTok today and she's doing a promo with them because she's- Oh, wicked like
0: partnering it. with them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, you know, this was someone who she absolutely adores what she does. You know, the whole band does. And she just wanted to keep doing it. And when you know that just by having a conversation with someone, you can make them feel like sometimes you're giving them the answer, but a lot of the time you're just telling them, just don't give up. Like I I just tell me what to do to just help you, and we'll just keep pushing through. It's just, it's just the best job ever. It's lovely.
0: Yeah, it sounds nice. I mean it's it's I think you have a sort of a more realized um uh, like defined version of like the nearest that I've had to that is like training junior developers. Mm. Uh so you take somebody who's got like scarcely any experience of coding, um, and then you just sort of give them a few exercises and you then they come back to you with a bunch of questions. And you're like, no no you you like you can do this. This is fine. Like, don't worry about it. It's cool. Like um and just over weeks and months and stuff then they get to a certain standard and you're like fuck like <laughs> like when, when they first started like they could barely do x y and z and you know now here they are and oh, i don't know going off for interviews elsewhere and like doubling their salary and you know it's it's quite yeah. cool yeah
1: yeah no, it really is I, I love it and you know i i work with very early startups like they're not on anyone's radar when i'm talking to them because yeah. they either think well I'm too small, I'm too early, no one will be interested. But also, they really don't have a lot of cash. You know, there's not this um, pool of money that they're going to put into having someone help them put a business plan together or a strategy. But I deliberately work with them because I want them to not just get going and, and have someone believe in them in those early stages, but also help train them on how to deal with success, because I've worked with the larger companies. I know, you know, I've heard every sales pitch you can possibly imagine. (laughs) And, um, you know, I've got a very high cynicism level for most selling. So if I can get those business owners to get to a point where when they have enough money that they get on other people's radar, they're walking in the room like really confident of yeah nothing's gonna I'm not gonna sign up to anything that I don't know will improve my business whereas I've walked into rooms with um managers in corporate and they come in and they go well I don't know really why you're here and just tell me what you sell and you just see the eyes light up with just how much they're gonna put through as consultancy spend and it's just it when you're a big company, it's not your money. When you're a small company, every penny is your money. Um, yeah. So working with them when they're when it's early just means that I can avoid them wasting money with somebody else later.
0: Yeah, sort of like hit them with the tools that they're going to need to have those conversations in the yeah. not-too-distant future before yeah. they become the next Jeff Bezos. I get it.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, exactly.
0: One thing I wanted to touch on was, um, uh, and we've sort of tapped into it with uh, your uh, your lady who, uh, was doing the, like the Mm. online stuff. And then now she's partnering with TikTok. Um, Mm. but like within the pandemic, I suppose, traditionally the idea of attracting investors or, you know, writing business plans and, and, uh, creating a startup, you had this idea that you'd have to rent office space, that you would have to hire a couple of like, I don't know, admin assistants or sales guys, or, uh, to, to get it up and running. Do you think the pandemic has changed that? Do you think that's it's sort of pushed people to just do it for themselves at home and do it online more aggressively or?
1: Yeah, I think a lot more went online. And as soon as things go online, your costs kind of go down anyway, because it's physical space and, and physical things that, that really cost the most. Um mm. I think going into the pandemic. Startups were already operating where nobody knew who they were. They didn't have any money and, you know, everything was uh, trying to scream into the void to tell people that you were there. As lockdown happened, all the big players had to just turn inward and work out how the hell they were going to get everyone to work from home. So they kind of had to leave the market quite a lot and go into almost like a hibernation state. So startups were able to just go, OK, well, this is just a normal day for me because I've got no resources, but I've never got any resources. So they they were able to utilize what was there. And um, most of them were already on things like Zoom. And, you know, any startup knows there's free versions of almost any piece of software you could need. Um, there's Fiverr to get copywriting, website design, Um editors, graphic designers, you know, for, for cheap. So they already know how to bootstrap. So when it went into the lockdown, it was like, well, we know how to operate in this environment. So we actually didn't see startups falter as much as the bigger companies who hacked millions and millions of pounds of infrastructure and real estate suddenly completely empty. And having to create a new infrastructure for people to use at home, it just it changed it almost almost overnight. It went different.
0: Yeah, it sort of speaks to this whole idea that like corporations, big banks, uh, things do they, they they move slowly in these organisations. They, uh, you know, like I've I've worked in a couple of different like, FTSE one hundred institutions. And it's just team after team after den of developers after like project managers and analysts and like HR teams. And, and it is difficult for them, like something as gigantic as a pandemic that changes and like upends the way that you work, Mm. um, to expect these, these institutions with like, you know, 5,000 employees or 20,000 employees to be able to adapt and evolve quickly is quite an ask, isn't it? But it's in, in startup culture, you're right. It's sort of like, I mean, when I was at, uh so I'm in a sort of scale up at the moment, but the startup that I was working at before uh, was all remote. <laughs> the startup mm-hmm. before that was sort of all, uh, actually, no, it wasn't all remote, but it was like, you could easily work from home if you wanted to yeah. that day. Like it was, it. whereas, yeah, like in the larger institutions, it's uh, it's, I think it's been really hard for them to adapt to it.
1: It, it's um <laughs> i'm gonna go off on another rank here um it's laziness in the way that they do their line management and the training right it, there's right. i've i've been in sort of dni um circles for a while because even though i was doing coo roles i'd always Wait, get involved in dni's D&I diversity and inclusion okay cool yeah so so one of the big keys was always flexible working like how do we get more inclusive by giving people ways of flexing and the question was the biggest difficulty was always from line managers saying well how do i know if they're working if i can't see them and it was like the easiest place to not work is in an office and yeah. i used to sit in um in Canary Wharf where all the banks are you'd have people sitting you know working for 15 hours But half that was, you know, coming in, taking a shower because they biked in to work and then they go for a coffee and then they go for their breakfast and then they'd meet someone in the coffee shop for a drink. And they might start work about 2 2 p.m. and then they'd have a little bit, you know, the the work compressed down. But it's so easy to not work in an office because all your line manager is looking for is can they see you? Whereas when you're remote, You they have to set you objectives, know what quality looks like, know how to communicate that to you, you know, keep the vibe going. So I think a lot of the push that we're seeing right now of getting people back in is because the line managers do not have the tools to manage remotely and they won't spend money on that sort of stuff. it
0: just irritates me knowing yeah it's so self-defeating though as well like i mean i've heard i'm i'm sort of in the process of recruiting and hiring and interviewing and things and uh i hear horror stories from people where they say yeah like we were we were really quick to to adapt to uh work from home remote working was fine in the pandemic but now that we're sort of coming through i mean arguably right like I, I just yeah. got a, a text from uh, my GP earlier saying whatever happens this like proactively they're texting me to say don't go to A&E because a and E's is really full I'm like oh great God. thanks for the warning I'll try not to have a serious act anyway um, yeah. but uh, but yeah so this, this chap was saying um, uh, in the you know in the early months of the pandemic they were super quick to adapt but now they're actually bringing it back to they expect you in the office three days a week and this guy was saying like people are just residing left right and center uh and and i wonder like if you are a slightly bigger company and you're trying to sort of bring this you know like mandated four days a week or, or whatever back in i think people will just leave because they've they've had a taste of this sort of freedom and this work-life balance and you know from my own perspective it's really important for like for dads and and mums too to be able to know that you can just get up and walk your kid to school or you know to do the school run to pack their lunchbox for them like it's good that they can see their mom and their dad in the morning and and for them to know that their mom and their dad are going to be there for like bath time and and bed in the evening and i think when when let's say like a big company like amstrad uh who i I, i'm putting out the hat because I think Alan Sugar is sort of infamously against work from home. He's like, "No, I like my work. I like my staff in the office." And uh I'm like, "You're going to lose all your fucking staff, mate, because I don't know I don't know any front end developers who would if you, if there was a job at Amstrad for 70k or a job at ABC startup for 60k but it was work from home. I think they'd take the 60k one because they like the cost in terms of commuting and the cost like in terms of time but also financially would be a non start they'd just be like why am i why should i accept the role that's modestly more money uh if i'm gonna spend all of that more money on the train like it makes no sense and shorten my life by five years by the fucking commuter (laughs) stress
1: no definitely And, and it doesn't make sense but the only thing corporates have had over smaller companies has been the level of salary that they could offer Right. And and the benefits of like a free gym and, uh, you know, a season ticket loan usually. Um, But this is why it's such a good opportunity for for smaller companies, for startups who can get access to resources who would never have thought of working for a startup. Because we had the remnants of that, not necessarily a job for life, but definitely, well, a job in corporate safer, isn't it? But given that a vast majority of the large companies have gone through massive redundancy rounds through COVID and, you know, have uh, gone lean for so much. It, it makes, you know, it's not a job for life. It's not any more secure than a startup. And you can probably get a better quality of life as well. And, you know, I worked in tech for 20 odd years and you walk on a floor that was a development floor and it was quiet because everyone sits there with their headphones on ignoring everyone because they don't want to be talking. They want to <laughs> be coding.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So them being at home really, really doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a definite sort of argument of like, well, if, if it's all about the team culture and the social aspect of it, then why are we all sat here <laughs> ignoring each yeah. other? <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah but um i will say that my my current team is super sociable we all get on great and have a good chat so uh uh yeah uh, i'd feel like something was it would be remiss of me to not uh, not give them a doff of the cap uh, <laughs> at that juncture um something else i wanted to ask you was you know we have we've, we've come through brexit there was a lot of uncertainty with that on business uh, it still is um we've come through lockdowns covid uh, social distancing, huge effects on retail, small businesses in that area, um, and now we have this sort of this like overarching fear that we might all get nuked and fried alive. By... Yeah,
1: because we didn't need anything else to stress us out right now, did we?
0: Right, it wasn't like we had uneventful like years before this. This is, but, yeah, it's it's the the cherry on the top of the cake that we just didn't need. <laughs> um But I mean, assuming that nu- uh, that uh, Putin doesn't nuke us. Mm. um we still have to i mean it's not like if if this war or invasion or whatever uh gets called off tomorrow it's not like the world is going to go back to being amazing like we've still got some unresolved issues and one of those that i i keep coming back to on different episodes of this is automation and Mm. the replacement of human labor by robots effectively uh and and artificial intelligence machine learning uh, whatever um where do you sort of stand on that? Like, where is where where do you think we're headed in terms of small businesses, employment, labor versus automation?
1: I, I mean, I talk to a lot of startups who will talk about AI and talk about, you know, augmented reality. And we've got the horror show that is the metaverse coming through at the moment. And there's this idea that we're all going to exist in this kind of virtual world and that machines are going to do everything for us. But I actually think in a way the pandemic has reminded us of how how useful it is to be a human and have compassion and empathy. And there are certain questions and certain things that you can't necessarily teach AI right now on how to how to act like a human they can behave like one but they can't think mm-hmm. as quickly as we can um i also think that if you look at the rate of change that we're going through there's there's no way of predicting whether yes the old jobs will go because they were boring jobs to do so actually we don't really want people to think that that's all they're worth but new jobs will emerge you know if you've got Uh, If you look at um, green tech, you know, that all of that, you know, that whole infrastructure is going to have to be serviced and maintained. But we need to skill people up for that. Um, So, yes, we'll lose some jobs, but there'll be others that come up and AI will replace some jobs. But I, I always think there's going to be a need for some kind of human oversight, particularly when you're dealing with other humans. Anyone who's gone to a website and seen that bloody bot start up in the corner going, How can I help you? (laughs) You know, it's like that, the remnants of the Microsoft Word little paperclip. Yeah, yeah. We hate it. We we absolutely know that there's no person behind that screen. And the COVID has reminded us that actually people do matter and that human connection matters. And so I, I see it acting to help our lives but not necessarily taking over everything. Um, But we just have to focus on the opportunities that are going to be made from it, not the opportunities lost.
0: I suppose things like, like influencers and, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, or, or maybe even a greater extent, I don't know, like podcasts, things that are rooted in humans talking and interacting with each other are things that are very difficult to fake with technology and, and, certainly will be in in like the next couple of decades at least yeah um i do wonder like if you could create a sort of eye robot like an actual like a a, an entity that you could have a transactional conversation with Mm. that could speak sense and have some sort of approximation of intelligence and respond Mm. to you and shit would people listen to a podcast listen like presented by that or or like a song that was written by ai if it had you know like would it do something to you would it give you goosebumps if it was the right melody but you knew that it was written by a robot like
1: i I don't think it would because actually we we like to think that we're quite logical and humans are messy you know we just you only have to follow any argument that goes on on twitter and someone thinks that they're being entirely rational and everyone else is going what the hell are you talking about so i think there's always that element of logic doesn't work we're not fully logic we're not fully emotional we're a bit of both and you know we need that we need that um connection i i do think the inclusion of you know podcasts and more content where people are talking is is a symptom of the fact that okay so if we're not needed to for our bodies like if we're not doing manual labor then what's the purpose of us and if you think back to um you know times of you know ancient greece and things like that they the reason they had all these massive philosophical debates was because they had the bloody time to have them (laughs) they weren't in the fields working so you know if we're going to get humanity back to some sort of normality Mm. we need to have the conversations and we can't do that if we're all busy working so maybe ai sorts that out
0: that's a really sort of uh uh, upbeat and optimistic way of looking at it. Like if we, if we replace everyone with robots, so there's no more checkout staff, there's no more cleaners, there's no more, uh, like you fill in the blanks. Um, then everyone becomes philosophers. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I'm like, I, I worry, I worry for the future of the human race because I, like my faith in us, evidenced by our political activity and behavior over the last like five, six years. Mm. uh, I just think if you took people's manual labor jobs away from them and they had no way of sort of, or very little way of, uh, of, of saving money or even paying their bills. uh, I just worry what would happen in, in that sort of instance.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the difficulty. It used to be, that we would have the philosophical debate about who we are and then our politics and our social structure would would be derived from that. Mm. Whereas at the moment, it's like we've got a backdraft. It's just how politics wants to operate is shoving us in a particular philosophical direction. Um, You know, it's, it's working the wrong way. Politics and society is supposed to work for us and to care for everyone in that society you know, I think some of the most meaningful contributions can come from the people who have literally nothing, but keep a smile on their face. Like, how do they do that? You know, it's easy to keep a smile on your face when you've got lots of money in the bank. But how do you keep going when you have nothing? Um, I want that person to be worried about their money and where that's coming from. I want them to explain that resilience to the rest of us.
0: I suppose there's two schools of thought on it isn't there like but... slightly more insulting people would say uh, ignorance is bliss that they don't really understand how fuck they are so they just sort of carry on about their day smiling um but i also think there's a school of thought that um actually when you are in and i'm sure there's been studies that back this up uh when you're in financial hardship when your life is actually struggle and challenge, you are actually at your happiest. Like it's the human uh, condition that when we're challenged, when we've got problems to solve or things to be like fretting about, like we're problem solvers at our core. And so when we have that challenge, that stress, it puts us in our sort of natural like fighting mode, I guess. Um, I remember listening to a podcast a couple of years ago where a guy called... Oh, I'm never going to remember his fucking name now. But, uh yeah, Yo- oh, Johan Hari, I think his known as. Yeah. Um, and he was saying these tests that they had done, uh, and 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 stats and stuff that I'm sure we could go away and Google. Uh, but he was saying like, if you interview the children of billionaires who all live in Malibu, they've all got fucking like anxiety and depression <laughs> disorders and stuff because they've got no challenge, they've got no frustration in their life, and nothing mm-hmm. to work towards. Like, what are you going to tell a sort of 15-year-old who's already got, like, you know, 100 million in the bank? Like, what, like, yeah. what are you going to work hard on? Fucking nothing. <laughs> like, so they're <laughs> miserable. Like, they've got no challenge there. And I really, I think there's something to that. I think it's, like, if you have a level of hardship in your life and challenge, it it G's you up. And I'm not saying, I'm not pretending for a second that uh, my situation is is hardship, uh, now but i'm familiar with it and, mm. and like i grew up on council estates and i'm you know been exposed to certain things in my life that uh i i sort of i'm familiar with that uh that lifestyle mm. and um and i can see how sort of you know striving and like working towards something and trying to fix something and like does sort of breed a, a level of happiness you know and, and to mm. keep you going you know
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I grew up on a council estate as well, and, and mm. there was definitely a sense of um, working to get somewhere, whether that was like out of the estate, which was always an option. Um, but that that feeling that it, something that you did mattered, I suppose. And we saw it at the beginning of the pandemic, like when lockdown happened and Facebook groups and next door full of people going, OK, I, I'm OK to leave the house. So is there anyone local who can't yeah. and I can bring them shopping? And, you know, we felt like we could do something, uh, but that was never going to last for two years. <laughs> we were always going to get pretty exhausted of that. But that time was a time, I think, where everybody did have a, a moment of, being equaled out a little bit more and going, Oh, none of us can go out here. And this isn't about how much money you've got. It's how, what your health is like and how, how vulnerable you are. And we did come together. We did try to look after one another that has disappeared to a large extent. (laughs) I'm not that much of an optimist, but it was there. And I just like to think that if it happened once, it can happen again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll drink to that i mean I, I remember that that period also where people were so used to living in uh in in sort of like cities and commuting and their friends lived in like two towns over and you know their families are like 45 minutes away from them and so suddenly you get thrown into a fucking pandemic lockdown and it's sort of almost re people where it's like oh yeah. shit like who's my neighbors do my like we can't leave the house, we're isolating. Do you think they could drop off some like milk and bread for us and like you know, yeah. going real old school? Mm. Um Okay, cool. Um listen, I'm I'm gonna have to leave it there, Lee, because we've been gassing away for uh for an hour, but thank you so much for joining me. Um yep. if uh if anyone wants to um catch up with Lee, uh she's on Twitter at Lee uh I was gonna say at Lee Lamb. is that right? At Lee Lamb Strategist Strategist, yeah. Um, and I will be back uh, next week for a solo episode again on uh, Wednesday when I'll be uh, picking a new story and uh, ripping it apart and roasting it a little bit. And uh, I'll be back next Friday night with another guest. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining, and I'll catch up with you soon. All right, ciao for now. Goodbye.